Amen. A few years ago, a friend of mine told me about an epiphany he had while driving past a McDonald's. He said, it just hit me. I'd, I'd never seen it before, but the golden arches make the letter M. Now, I remembered that this week as I got into this passage in the Gospel of John, in particular, how it's possible to have something in front of you, maybe all around you, and never see it for what it really is. We're looking at this passage in John 10 this morning, and really the key to understanding it, to grasping its meaning, is to see its connection to the chapter that came just before it, where Jesus healed a man born blind. That's a story that really turns on this idea of, of seeing and not seeing. And that healing of the man born blind set off a series of events which culminates in that man coming to faith in Jesus, falling down before Jesus, and worshiping Jesus. You see, it turns out that the climactic part of that story is not the, the physical healing of his sight so that he was able to see for the first time in his life, but it's really, it really comes when the eyes of his heart were opened so that he was able to see Jesus for who he really is for the first time in his life as God who deserves our worship. And after he comes to faith, Jesus responds to that worship, responds to him coming to faith by saying the most curious thing, and all of it has to do with seeing and not seeing. He says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Now, the religious leaders, the, the, the Pharisees, overheard that. They took it personally, and they shot back at Jesus, are we also blind? And Jesus answered, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. What's he talking about there? These are people who've seen a lot. They've poured over the Scriptures. They've seen the results of Jesus' Jesus's miraculous and healing work in the life of this man. They, they live with and see the spiritual needs of their people, which are always before them, and yet, they don't see. They don't see the Scriptures for what they really are and what they really point to. They don't see Jesus for who He really is. They don't even really see the brokenness and needs of their own people, and yet, they insist that they see it all, and because of that, Jesus says, your guilt remains. And I get into that because this background is really critical to understanding the chapter we're in in chapter 10. Our passage opens with Jesus speaking. He's addressing. He's still talking to the same group of people in John 9. We can assume that the man who was healed of his blindness and came to faith in Jesus is there. We can assume that some of his believing disciples are there, but he's really zeroed in on these religious leaders. And he starts off with this phrase, this phrase, truly, truly. And, and whenever you see that, that ought to pop off the page of your Bible because it means two things. One is it means that Jesus is summing up something important that has just happened. And it means that what he's about to say is of particular importance. It's, it's the Bible's way of saying, I'm grabbing your lapels now, and if you hear nothing else, hear this. 
So he sums up all that's just happened with this healing and with this man coming to faith with something like a sermon illustration. He tells them that he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. What's he talking about? He's, he's talking about how to get in. And, and to put a finer point on it, how to get into what he calls the sheepfold, the, the flock of sheep that have been brought into the pen through a gate or a door. These aren't sheep scattered on the side of a mountain. They are sheep who have been rounded up, shepherded, to the end that their life is bound up in the relationship with the shepherd who gives them protection and care and food and everything. That sheepfold that Jesus is referring to is the people of God. He's actually tapping into a well-worn metaphor used throughout the Bible to describe the people of God as a people who've been chosen by God, gathered up by Him, who were fed by Him, protected by Him, cared for by Him in every way. The relationship is like that of a sheep to a shepherd, a shepherd to a sheep. But here's the interesting thing. Jesus is trafficking in more than metaphors here and explaining what it looks like to come into a saving, life-sustaining relationship with God because he actually has with him right there a man. The man born blind who was healed and saved by Jesus is right there as a living, breathing example a picture of what it looks like to be brought into the sheepfold of God by the grace and power of God. And it's not like the Pharisees weren't paying attention to this man. In fact, this guy had become something of an obsession for them, except that they were accosting him. They interrogated his parents. They harassed him. They made demands of him. They weren't bringing him in. In other words, they were beating him up. They were running him off. And they were particularly ticked at the fact that Jesus had the temerity to heal this man on the Sabbath, which in their minds amounted to breaking the law, breaking God's law. So they were obsessed with Sabbath particulars. That's all they could see, and they were blinded to Savior power. What were they doing? They were coming to this particular sheep who'd been brought in to Jesus' sheepfold by another way, not through the door. And it's not like they didn't care about the Bible, but they were zeroed in on some of its particulars in such a way that they missed the big picture. They, were, they, they become blind to the beauty of the man's healing, blind to the glory of the Savior, so that all they could see was Sabbath-breaking hung up on one legal particular, they missed actually the whole point of the Bible, the Messiah, the Lord of the Sabbath who was there and at work among them. And the greatest irony of all in losing sight of the law's purpose and its point, they'd actually become lawbreakers themselves. That's why Jesus says, because you insist that you see, your guilt remains. You see, there's... There's actually no prohibition against healing on the Sabbath. The law not only gives provision for doing good to people, it gives provision for doing good to animals. Back in chapter 7, Jesus asked the religious leaders if, if the law allows for something like circumcision on the Sabbath, 
Why are you angry at me for healing a whole man's body on the Sabbath? So these religious leaders called to shepherd God's people are climbing in by another way. They're not going through Jesus. They're not going through the gospel. They're going through the law. They're coming in and among God's people and at Jesus in exactly the way Jesus describes as thieves and robbers. Uh, Back in verse 24 in chapter 9, the Pharisees were quick to brand Jesus a sinner after he had healed this man. What were they doing there? They were stealing the honor that belonged to Jesus alone. They, They kicked the the man born blind out of the community. What were they doing there? They were stealing his relationships. They were stealing his safety. They were stealing his own good reputation. They were smashing it all up. One commentator translates thieves and robbers as thieves and ripoff artists. Robbing Jesus of the honor due his name rips people off. It hurts them. It wrecks them. It denies them of their deepest need for human flourishing, which is a relationship with Jesus. Now, Jesus contrasts the thieves and the rip-off artists with the person, he says, who enters by the door. That person, Jesus says, is, is a shepherd of the sheep. Now, what's clear at this point, anyway, is that Jesus isn't talking about himself. There's, in the original language, there's no definite article before the word shepherd. It's He doesn't say the shepherd of the sheep. He says a shepherd of the sheep. He's talking about lowercase shepherds. He's talking about people who've who've, who've come to him by faith, people who've been entrusted with leading and caring for God's people, pastors and teachers and elders especially, but I think more broadly, anyone who's got the opportunity in their life to, to bring another person into a relationship with the Lord. So for the second time in just two two verses, Jesus says that at the end of the day, there's really just two kinds of people. There's door people, and there's do-it-another-way people. There's doorwayers, and there's wall climbers. Uh, A door person is someone who has come into a living relationship with God through faith in Jesus alone. And a do-it-another-way person A wall climber is someone who is always insisting there's there's actually another way to a relationship with God and and, and that it ultimately falls to you to to make your way in rather than having the way open to you. And I just want to do a little bit of noticing at this point in this passage. First of all, Jesus is really urgent as he's talking about this. It's really important. It's something of an emergency. It's, it's something that our lives depends on. He's, again, truly, truly, right? And he, and he repeats himself uh, to make the point again, to emphasize it. And, and the second thing I want to point out is he's talking to religious people. He's talking to very religious people. He's talking, in fact, to religious leaders prominent in their community. It's very easy for us to, if you've been around the church much, to see that word Pharisee as kind of interchangeable with, you know, villain. But these were people who were very concerned about the teaching of the Bible. They cared very much and were deeply invested in what they thought to be the spiritual health of their community. They were passionate about personal holiness, about doing good deeds. 
And, and in fact, we know that some of them, maybe many, came, eventually came to faith in Jesus. So when I look at Jesus' urgency and his audience, you know, I've got to realize that before, you know, as I'm pointing the finger at others, I've got three more or four more pointing back at me. That is to say, it's possible to be very religious, very moral, very upright, community-minded, have some Bible verses at the ready, even be ordained and still be an other wayer, a do-it-another wayer, a wall climber, still insist that at the end of the day, there's more required to a relationship with God than just faith in Jesus alone. But a doorway person is completely different. They know and they speak, and they live, and they minister in such a way that they are always attesting to the fact that there is no other way in except through faith in Jesus and Him alone. So they don't demand, they don't put any other requirements out there. There's no other agenda. There's no other message than the gospel. And again, there's no better example of a doorway than this healed blind man. He has had a whole lot thrown at him in a very short time. He has been interrogated by the people who have all the power in his community. He has been pressured. His family has been pursued. He has been punished, excommunicated from the community. But at every turn, all he can talk about is Jesus. At every turn, it's like, oh, you want to know about my healing? Jesus healed me. You want to know about what kind of person I think Jesus is? I, I think he's the kind of person who brought God's truth into my life and healing into my life. I think he's the kind of person who has spiritual authority like no other in my life. Oh, you're excommunicating me from the community? I'm not going to my family. I'm not going to go find some other religious authority. I'm going straight to Jesus. And in fact, that's what he did. He put his faith in Jesus. He fell down and he worshiped him. Time after time in this man's life, other doors were opened to him. He was practically being shoved in to those other doors to, with the insistence that he get away from Jesus, that he climb this wall, that he go through some other door. But he treated each opportunity the way a cat treats a bathtub full of water. Unless I'm going through Jesus, in other words, I'm not going in. He didn't want to talk about anyone else give credit to anyone else. He didn't care what it had cost him. And even when it did cost him terribly, he went straight to Jesus to give him all the glory and laud and honor and entrust his life to him fully. Everything good, healing, a life, acceptance, security, and identity came to him by going through that one door. And all of it came comes by grace. The do-it-another-wayers, the, the, the wall climbers insist that there's another way in and that you've got to, to work your way through it. But Jesus not only says that there's one way, he actually talks about the gatekeeper who opens that door for you. Back in chapter 4, Jesus spoke to a woman at a well about this gatekeeper. And he explained to her that the way to a relationship with God is that he leads you to it. He opens it for you. 
By what? By the Spirit and by the truth. When Jesus refers to the gatekeeper here in verse 3, he's talking about the Holy Spirit who opens the door, who leads us to Jesus, who is the truth and the way and the life. And when we think about being shepherded, if you're at all familiar with the Bible, your mind might go to one of the most famous shepherd passages in the Bible, Psalm 23. And the way the shepherd leads his sheep there is is by the rod, by the staff. So it's striking to see in this passage that the critical instrument of shepherding here, Jesus says, is the voice. The voice of the shepherd. The voice is not only how we're led, the voice is the key to the whole of life. The voice, it turns out, is what enables the sheep to know true shepherds from the thieves and the robbers. It's the voice that assures God's people that they're known by name. It's the voice that leads them to life. The voice, you see, Jesus is saying, is the authentic, true gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus is talking about shepherds. What are shepherds? Shepherds are door people. They're Christ-centered people. They're Christ-centered preachers and teachers and leaders who've got no other agenda other than the gospel, who will never give voice to anything other than the gospel, who will never tell you that there is life to be had in working toward your own self-improvement, in getting on board with the right social agenda, or anything other than the person and work of Jesus. Now, when we step back for a second... I hope we can begin to see what's taken shape. Big picture. Jesus is describing, Jesus is saying that the way in to God's people is also the way of God's people. The way into life comes by faith in Jesus alone. And the way of life comes by what? Faith in Jesus alone being led in by the Holy Spirit and being led by His voice, the Word of God, so that His people have their ears finely tuned for a Christ-centered voice by shepherds who know them by name, Jesus says. It is that voice that leads them in, but critically, if you notice, He also says it's that voice that leads them out. What Jesus is describing here is not a life of merely being led further and further into the middle of the flock, into, you know, my world of religious contemplation, my world of religious separation, away from, you know, the world and into the middle of the sheepfold. He also talks about being led out. Into what? Into the world. Led out by the same Spirit that led them in, with the same message that brought them in, that Jesus is the only way to life, that He's good news for the whole world, that He is what every human being needs. So Jesus is the door into fellowship with God and His people with new faith, with all the benefits that come with that, in life and security and nourishment, and He is also the door out to face the world with gospel-nourished faith. He opens the way and leads His people to the heart of God, and He opens the way and leads His people to the heart of the world with all of its beautiful, broken people. Notice that the shepherd gets not some of the sheep out, but he gets all of them out. And that's central to caring for his sheep. There's a striking repetition here. Jesus continues to talk about shepherds 
who know their sheep as, as their own. He's describing a relationship here. Jesus' shepherds who know their sheep, who care for them, who make sure that none of them are neglected, none of them are left behind. They're all cared for. And, and, and I in no way want to diminish what a gift this video thing has been in uh, being able to stream our services. Uh, not only has it been a great gift, I expect it will continue to be for some time in these extraordinary times. But I also want to be clear that Jesus never envisions a socially separated virtual church where people are merely consumers of messages and music and all the stuff that goes on in a service. What he envisions here is the beauty of the local church in which people are known by name, in which people know their shepherds by name, with shepherds who go before their sheep, who lead them in the love of Jesus, as shepherds who look to Jesus as their shepherd, as shepherds who hear his voice and follow and ask others to come along and follow. You see, well-led sheep are well-loved sheep. They follow because of his voice. They're intimately familiar with the timber, the rhythm, the tone, the words, the accent of the gospel. So that everything is inflected and saturated and, and suffused with Christ. Because the gospel way into life is also the gospel way of life. In fact, ears are so finely tuned to what the gospel is for God's people that when they hear other voices, Jesus actually doubles down and saying, not only won't they follow those voices, but they will run in the other direction as if their life depends on it because, in fact, it does. What's certain is we'll all hear the other voices. They're voices that might be stern, full of warnings, that if we don't follow in their way, we'll be in big trouble. They might be attractive. They might woo us with promises of the good life if we only follow. They, they, they might quote the scriptures as these uh, false teachers, uh, religious leaders, have quoted the fourth commandment to this man. They quote, they're quick to quote Moses. Of course, the devil himself quotes scripture to Jesus. They might even have the name of Jesus on their lips. But what, what those voices all have in common is this. All of them are something other than Jesus' voices or something in addition to Jesus' voices. They are never Jesus' alone voices. In some way or another, those voices insist that there's another way, that there's more to do, that there's a better way into relationship with God, that there is into that sheep, to get into that sheepfold, there's a secret passage, there's another door, there's a seemingly low point in the wall that would, you know, won't be too hard for you to climb over. But true shepherds, true sheep, Jesus repeats, come in through the door. They go out through the door. They know that they owe everything to that door so that their preaching, their teaching, their leading, their living of all of life is always taking you in and out through Jesus Christ alone. There's never a whiff, never a suggestion that there's any other advantage, any other access point or way around into the good life in God other than through faith in Jesus alone. Now, Jesus has thrown a lot of imagery at us here with, with the door and the doorkeeper and the shepherd and the sheepfold and the voices and the going out and the coming in. 
And it turns out that in verse 6, the religious leaders who've just heard all this don't understand a word of it. That's pretty striking stuff because just before this in chapter 9, probably the most repeated phrase from this crowd as they were going after that healed blind man was the phrase, we know. I mean, they seemed to know everything that needed knowing. They said, we know that this man is not from God, speaking of Jesus, because he heals on the Sabbath. We know, again, speaking of Jesus, that this man is a sinner. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And yet, for all they claim to know, they don't know what in the world Jesus is talking about. They're so strident in their certainty, so sure that the way to God comes by way of obedience to the rules that they are tragically missing this God-given opportunity to recognize Jesus, the Son of God, right there in front of them. Having the door swung wide open before them, refusing to go in. So when Jesus explains it to them, there's a whole lot he could have said. I mean, heck, I've, I've spent the last 20 minutes explaining about shepherds and sheepfolds and thieves and robbers and doorkeepers and voices and being led, and, and led in and out, but Jesus breaks it down for them. He goes right to the heart of the matter, the point of the whole illustration, and here is what they need to hear and that we need to hear. He says, I am the door. And the way he puts it, it's actually incredibly forceful. I mean, if we were going to put it as literally as possible, it would be something like this, through me, I, I am the door. If anyone ever comes, that person will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He expands that, that answer actually by talking about three, three things. He talks about entering life, engaging with life, and enjoying life. To be kept safe is to be saved. It's to be brought into right relation with God by faith. It is to enter into newness of life by repenting of my sins, by trusting in Jesus as my Savior, by turning from, you know, the fool's errand of trying to make a life for myself, knowing that He is life, that He has done it. To be kept safe is to be saved. To come and go is to be engaged with life in the world in a whole new way because of the life we've received from Jesus. And to find pasture is to enjoy life as it was meant to be lived. It is to come into the good life. It's what Jesus calls at the end of this passage, abundant life. Life as it was meant to be lived. It is to enter life, to engage with life, and to enjoy life anew because of Jesus. What a contrast to wall climbing, to searching for another way. I mean, I haven't climbed a wall in a long time, but I know that scaling walls and climbing fences and digging around furiously looking for other ways in other than the door that is being swung open is hard work. It is exhausting. It is, in fact, futile. It's work that robs you of the good life. It rips you off from what Jesus is glad to give by grace. And so he doubles down again. He says it again. Those who came before me are thieves and robbers. There were then and there are now influential people, powerful people, attractive people, religious people, people who will promise you the entry, engagement, and enjoyment, but in the end will kill you and me. 
because they've got no time for the gospel. They disregard the power of, God, of the gospel in raising up the lowly and making the blind to see and healing people of their sin and bringing them into faith by grace alone. These are people who would have us look straight past Jesus, imagining we can see something better. If only we would climb the wall, find another way, by keeping our noses clean, by keeping the rules, by sticking to the right tradition, by getting on board with the right agenda, by having the right attitude, and a million other things, just so long as Jesus is not the only way. One of the most shocking chapters in the Bible is Matthew 23, where Jesus is pronouncing woes upon these very religious authorities. He's, he's, he's shredding them for their bad shepherding, for their destructive ministry. And the very first one has to do with doors. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. They slam the door and they say there's another way. The entry point is everything because the gospel is everything. We've just celebrated the resurrection of Jesus at Easter and toward the end of this gospel after the resurrection, Jesus makes a beeline for Peter. Peter was a wayward sheep, if there ever was one, as Jesus made his way to the cross. Peter was like a scared sheep running along the wall of his faith, desperately trying to find another way in. He was murderously striking out at others. He was abandoning Jesus. He was denying him. He was falling apart in despair. But for all his frailty and failure, for all the bad he had done and for all the good things he had not done, he had, one, he had the one thing he needed a good shepherd in the Lord Jesus, a shepherd who pursued him to take him back through the door, readmitting him, maybe to put a finer point on it, reordaining him. And you know, and, and do you know how Jesus does that? He doesn't shame him. He doesn't make him atone for all of his failures or resolve to never fail again. He puts one question to him, one question that he actually asks three times, and the question is simply this, Peter, do you love me? Peter, what is your supreme love? Not do you love straightening out people's lives, or do you love success, or do you love authority? No. There's just one way into fullness of life, one way to live. One way to serve, and it all hinges on the answer to that. Do you love me? And with each question, the same question three times, Peter says, yes. Yes, I do. And with that, Jesus gives Peter three things to do, which are all the same thing. He says, feed my sheep. Lead them to me. Live in me. Enjoy life in me. Don't steal that from people. Don't rip them off. Don't kill them. Lead them to me. Leave them there. Because in me there is life, and life abundant. Let me pray. Jesus, this is so suffused with your grace and your mercy toward us. You know that we are like Peter who run along the wall, 
who want to find another way, and you are faithful to lead us to yourself. Jesus, you are enough. You are more than enough. May we grow in you. May we never imagine that there is any other way, that there is any advancing beyond the good news of the gospel. Lord, would we relish it, live in it. Lord, for those of us who have put our faith in you, would we, as we approach the table here in a minute, eat and drink more deeply, putting our faith in you, bringing all of our mess to you, trusting you as our good shepherd, as the door is the only way in. And Lord, for those of us who are thinking about these things, would you end the exhaustion? Would you lead them to yourself? The door is open. It's there to walk through. We pray that you would lead them there. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.